Enter if you dare this ghastly conversation of teens fraught with despair and recent lacerations. Final girl, chase after her, don't let her get away. But first, the slumber podcast massacre. Welcome to Slumber Podcast Massacre with TNA. That's Tim. That's Andy. And this is a podcast about horror. Every week, Tim and I are going to jump in and talk about a different horror movie from your revered classics to that rare gem that sits at the back of your video store shelf. This week, Tim and I are going to jump into the 1990 sequel, The Exorcist, Part 3. Uh, I didn't plan a question for you, Tim, so I'm going to ask you, uh, do you believe in demonic possession? Wow, that's a uh, – that just – talk about just lobbing up a, a cream puff there. <laughs> uh, no, but it's a great question. Um, okay, so uh, – It doesn't even have to be demonic. Do you believe another soul can inhabit a body? I suppose if I if if you believe in one thing, by logic, it would probably you'd, you'd have to believe in the other. And what I mean by that is, uh, not to get too heavy, but it's a, it's an interesting story. Uh, I have a I had a friend that passed away, and it was uh, a couple of years after his death that I experienced something where it felt like a very direct pressure on the top of my head, kind of almost pushing down onto it. I remember exactly where I was when it happened. And I don't even remember anything specific as far as, you know, him trying to say something or communicate something. But it was the idea that I absolutely in that moment, and I suppose to this day, very much feel like his presence uh, was there with me. Um, and we all have experiences where maybe you remember something about a, a loved one who's passed away and you can kind of hear their voice saying something, maybe advice that you think that they would have given you. Sure. This was different than that. This was very much it, it felt like an actual physical presence. So um, by virtue of that, if, if I believe that it's possible for somebody's spirit to continue after death, um, even to the point of making themselves apparent to somebody who's still living, I guess you'd kind of have to believe that that spirit could do things. Sure. Um, so have I have I seen demonic possession, or or do I think it's it's commonplace? And I, I'm not going to go that far. Thankfully, it is not. Common. Yeah, because that would be Whew. confusing for a lot of us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can't remember people's uh, names as like it a is. Niche market that pops up, like little <laughs> holistic uh, exorcists and like differing uh, methods on exorcism. Capitalism, baby. Right. <laughs> well, and, and like I was saying, I I'm terrified of calling people by their first name as it is anyway. Yeah. Like I'm horrible with names, so that the idea that they could be two people now. <laughs> it's only going to make it that much harder yeah, for me. Good point. Uh, I'm going to do a lot more of, hey, you. Hey, guy. So, yeah, I'm My glad. My name is Gorgar. <laughs> like, We've met uh, each other six times now. Look, I can't remember your real name. I can't remember your demonic <laughs> possession name to save my fucking life, all right? <laughs> um but yes, uh, no, I think that um, I think that that brings up an interesting topic regarding this movie, and that is the idea of religious horror movies somehow holding more weight in fact yeah for some people sure um and uh we've like we've talked about before there are people that are of the opinion that horror movies that have to do with religion are somehow more plausible right cuz there's a little kernel of truth there and how do you feel about that uh <laughs> listen like just going to be straightforward here. I don't believe in the devil. I don't believe in souls. I don't think any of that is real. So when I watch a movie, a horror movie based on religious principles or or dogma, it, it is not frightening to me. You can make it scary like this movie does through the use of sound, uh, clever filming. Uh, uh, but no, the actual like I don't leave going that might happen. That could happen to me. 
Like after when I was a kid and saw Silence of the Lambs, even though I am no one Hannibal Lecter would ever be interested in, there was still a like walking into my house alone, like he could be here. Like that's a reality for me. Yeah. But I don't I don't worry at night like uh, I hope uh, an ancient spirit doesn't uh, take over uh, my body that leaves me incapacitated. Now, what I can tell you, and that's a good thing, yeah, because nobody, I mean, life is hard as it is. Right. You know, who wants to be afraid of the fact that the devil's going to come get you at night? I mean, that's that's no fun. And I can speak to that personally because I actually do experience a phenomena that is called... Uh, let me get this right. Sleep paralysis with demonic visitation is actually the the medical term for it, even though it, it doesn't sound very medical, but it is. And it's actually a it's a sleep disorder. Sure. And there there is Night no terrors, as people call yeah, it. There is no demon coming to get me. But I'll tell you what, in that moment, it sure as hell feels like it. And yeah. It's terrifying. Yeah. See, and I've, I've never experienced something like that. So may, that might uh, sway. <laughs> I doubt please, it, though. Please I don't doubt let it. it. <laughs> don't make it any more real than it already is. Please, <laughs> right. God. But uh, but no. Okay, so so here we have uh, The Exorcist Three. Now, there is a lot to get into with this one, not only in the film itself, but in how it came about and the troubles that it went through and, and some of the disagreements internally. Um, do you feel comfortable? Because I know that you, you've only seen this movie one time. Yeah. Well, two times. I, I watched it again this morning. Oh, did you? Okay. Yeah. Do you feel comfortable giving Nan's summary? Oh, um, yeah, I could. Let's if do it. If you want to, you can. No, Please no, don't. I, like, I, I don't you, feel you like. You actually do a really great job of <laughs> taking some convoluted plots and, and making them, like, very understandable. So okay, no. so this plot is, uh, it's pretty simple. So it's, it is a continuation of the events. Not really the events, but the characters from The Exorcist, uh, the first one. The, the second one is completely ignored in this movie, essentially. Uh, so you have the the cop from the first one, uh, Lieutenant Kinderman. Correct. Uh, and he is kind of um, investigating these new murders that are popping up. Uh, they have all the marks of a serial killer. They're very uh, eccentric deaths. Um, uh, and so his uh, priest friend is in the hospital. I, you know what? I think I'm going to do a bad job of summing this up. <laughs> Do you want me to jump in? Go ahead. Go okay. ahead. I mean, I, I I know the right points to hit, but. No, it, it does get a little confusing if if you start out with. The I exorcist. even re I already did this to myself <laughs> earlier and I was like, that's how I'll do it. And I completely forgot like what I was going to say. Well, I'm going to give it my if if my attempt doesn't work, we're just going to volley back and forth okay, until we get this thing fair. right. OK, feel free to jump in. So let's just start real quickly the the first exorcist is about the possession of a young girl uh in attempts at the at the film's climax to rid her of this possession there are two priests one older one younger we'll make it simple the younger priest uh in a desperate attempt to free the girl from her possession invites the the demonic force into his body to overtake him the uh the demon obliges jumps into the younger priest's body at which time he then throws himself out the window down a flight of stairs killing himself and hence saving the girl from any further harm that priest, when he is at the bottom of the stairs and about to die, is found by another priest, a friend of his, named Father Dyer. And Father Dyer gives him, administers his last rites. Uh, after these events have, have you know, finally come to an end, Father Dyer, who administered the last rites, is talking with Lieutenant Kinderman, who was a friend of that younger priest who sacrificed himself. And Father Dyer and Lieutenant Kinderman then begin, out of shared trauma, a friendship that lasts the next 17 years until we get to the events of Exorcist 3. Okay, okay now, now we're doing – okay, I'm like, are we ever going to summarize Exorcist right. 3? So now we're at Exorcist 3. So you have <laughs> – Father Dyer and uh, Lieutenant Kinderman have continued their friendship through the years. There are a series of murders happening in town which mimic the M.O. of a former serial killer who was executed for his crimes. And what's really confounding— that Kinderman to, helped put away. Yes. Yeah. And, who Kinder, and, and the reason why Kinderman is so distressed is because 
the MO or the details of the murders that were leaked to the press were actually purposely incorrect in order to weed out any wackos that, that want to claim, uh, you know, that they actually they were, were the, the ones that committed the murders. So he's seeing that somebody is committing these murders for real or, or very much in the identical fashion of the Gemini killer, which was the name given by the press to the to the serial killer who was executed. Uh, so he's very concerned, yeah. and he uh, consults uh, his friend, Father Dyer. Um, as we continue forward, Father Dyer is killed himself. Uh, Kinderman is drawn even further into the cases as he attempts to solve the mystery of what exactly is going on, and it's not helped by the fact that he is introduced to a mysterious prisoner who is in the disturbed ward of the local hospital who, by the way, happens to look identical to his old friend, Whoa. Father Karras, who sacrificed himself in the first film. Yeah. And as he talks to him, it turns out he's inhibited. Inhabited. Inhibited. He's not inhibited. He's kind of inhibited. <laughs> but he is inhabited by the Gemini killer. Right. And so uh, to the... Uh, because is it the devil in the first one, or it's just a demon? It, it is, is that ever really clarified? <clears throat> it is clarified in the fact that the demon is given a name, a proper name, yeah. and I am going to experience some severe hate mail right now for not remembering that demon's <laughs> Please, name. Please send us I'm hate sorry. mail, slumberpodcast <laughs> at gmail.com. Yeah, I mean, hate mail would at least be mail. <laughs> right. I mean, that, that would be a nice uh, turnaround. But no, there is an actual demon in from the first movie. He's given a specific name. Now, what we don't know is, is that demon just like a run-of-the-mill demon, or is it the, the devil himself? Right. So that's never overtly clarified, um, but I think we're given to understand that when this movie references the master... That's that the is devil. the devil himself. Old Beazel boss. Old Scratch. <laughs> old Scratch. <laughs> call, call him the old wife. <laughs> so, but I mean, he apparently, you know, by all biblical uh, leanings, a very attractive guy. Yeah, well, he's an angel, so, yeah. you know. Right, he's got that going for him. Yeah, uh, but yeah, so to spite, to spite those involved in the uh, first exorcist he sends back the gemini killer's soul into the body of their friend who yeah. as the gemini killer explains this since he died this whole thing was soup and it took me a long time to kind of like reconstruct my facility so that's why he sits doing nothing for 17 years, years. Yeah. right right um and then all of a sudden is like strong enough because it's like a He's almost now like a radio signal because he can then, using that, using the old father Karis body, is able to then project himself into the minds of the catatonic because in this hospital there is a psych ward as well. So he's then able to puppet these catatonic people to commit his crimes. And the catatonic people are chosen because the fact that they are catatonic makes them easier prey for possession. Right. As we're given to understand. And so we need to exercise it. Uh, that was... Uh, the least concise Nan summary we've ever done. <laughs> yeah, and the longest. I'll work on them for but next But now time. that you're thoroughly up to speed and have it at precise... So that's it. Thanks for listening. And uh, no. <laughs> Tune in next week for The Exorcist 4. <laughs> uh, Is there an Exorcist 4? No, thank okay, God. Thank so. God, no. But I mean, I wish there were, but right. not called The Exorcist 4. Right. Which, let's talk about that for a second. New Moon Entertainment will get it. Uh, what's in a name, as they say? Right. Uh, well, apparently it's a lot. Because The Exorcist, by virtue of itself, is a great name for a movie. Uh, we were all terrified by it. And then along comes the sequel as you know it, but it wasn't the intended sequel. So let's talk a little bit about the history of how The Exorcist 3 came about and what unfortunately came before it, namely Exorcist 2. The Heretic. Yeah. The piece Let's of give it the proper subtitle. <laughs> right. So, just a real nice, simple history on that. The Exorcist comes out and it does well. It's written by William Peter Blatty. And the first movie does well. So, he. <laughs> and, and, That's a bit of an understatement. Right. <laughs> yeah. Be people, becomes a cultural phenomenon. People, the most successful uh, horror movie, essentially. 
This, the, deemed the scariest movie ever made. Folks were affected by they the They knew film. it. People yeah. knew it. So it does, uh, it, it, it performs well. It does well. It scares the shit out of people. And so William Peter Blatty, who wrote the, uh, the first screenplay, immediately writes a sequel. Uh, unfortunately. Called Legion. Yeah, called Legion. Unfortunately, now, he actually writes the sequel in a screenplay fashion. Now, there's some problems here because, as is so common, studio heads and executives think that they know better than actual artists. So what they don't really like is the fact that his sequel doesn't really tie directly into the character of the girl from the first film. And they want something different. They want something like maybe the girl is older now and she has babies and they're possessed or something. And so he's frustrated and he kind of cuts ties with the whole thing and says, you know what? Screw it. I'm just going to write it as a novel then. And then we get the novel of Legion. So in the meantime, uh, because studios love money, yep. they have to usher in some Exorcist sequel. So along comes Exorcist Two: The Heretic, which is I, there is <laughs> I don't know if there's a movie that is more universally hated yeah. than The Exorcist Two. Um, it has Linda Blair is in it, who of course starred in the first film. So they've got her in it. And I think the studio thought, hey, if we've got the girl, we've got a movie. Yeah. And unfortunately, it just is so unrelated in content and quality to the first film that it just bombs, yeah. and, and rightfully so. So That's all we need to say about that movie. Right. So now, finally, they turn back to William Peter Blatty, who has this, oh, by the way, perfect sequel yeah, like, that he turned what? in. I uh, did read your book, and turns out. Yeah. You know what we should have done? Yeah. You want to make that a movie? <laughs> so they do that, and they decide to do that. Um, and what what's really kind of endearing here is that they go through a series of two directors that would have both been great choices for what became The Exorcist Three. First one was William Friedkin, who directed the first film. Yeah. So that that sounds plausible. Um, although there were some disagreements between the author, William Peter Blatty, and William Friedkin. So Friedkin says, you know what? I'm off it. You know, do it without me. Then they go to John Carpenter. John Carpenter is a great choice. And I, I would be really interested to see how that movie would have turned out. Yeah. What was he doing around this time? Ooh. Um, this would have been... When did Ghosts of Mars come out? Well, <laughs> that's an answer or question that I don't know the answer Me to. But I will. I'll tell you this. I'll tell you this. We're talking mid '80s. I mean, he would have been dancing around with uh, like Big Trouble in Little China. Oh yeah, that would have been right around the All same right. time. I could see why. So obviously, Carpenter had some some things going on enough to the point to where he didn't have to do this. He wasn't struggling for work. And it became clear to Carpenter, as well as everybody else, that in his heart of hearts, William Peter Blatty, the author, is the guy that really wanted to direct this. Now, funny thing is, I don't know if William Peter Blatty had any directorial experience before this. I don't think he did. And uh, it doesn't show, because it's one of my favorite parts of this movie. There are uh, just some very effective... It seems simple, and almost sometimes the editing is a little off-putting. Uh... But it also uh, uh, makes makes the um, the atmosphere for yeah. it because uh, it, it it some of it goes very quick. There is some stuff that's very drawn out, but then there are cuts like he doesn't let like a, a scene breathe. Like it'll just be like uh, and that you know and uh, so I went to the store. Boom! Next scene, like next scene starts immediately. Like right. it's just this weird cut. Like right after the last breath has come out of a guy's mouth, um, and they're weird like. Just as two people are talking, then it'll just cut to like, here's a rose uh, in a vase by the window. Right. And then back to these people talking. Uh, or those, there's those weird sound cuts where you'll be in a scene that's happening, and then the sound track from the next scene starts playing over the current scene. Yeah. Kind of like as a predecessor before you go into the next scene and you're like, wait a second, there's somebody screaming in this scene? And you realize, no, nobody's screaming. That's just the audio kind of like in like introducing the next scene. So you're right. There are some interesting 
like editing and and directorial choices, uh, of course, a lot of which we'll get to later. Yeah, as John I say. Carpenter wasn't doing anything at this time, so he could have done it. Oh, wait a second. What? Okay, what what year did this movie come out? Nineteen ninety. Oh shoot! That, yeah, that's way after. Um, that's way way after what I was thinking. Um, yeah, nineteen ninety. No, he wasn't doing much of. He's literally anything. in between, like they live and uh, I don't know. Yeah, he kind of hit the skids there for. He, he's. I mean, John, I love John Carpenter as much as anybody, but he's. He start- was in between. They live and Memoirs of an Invisible Man. I totally forgot he did that movie. Just as long as it wasn't that fucking Dracula movie that he did. Oy, oy, oy. What was that one? Dracula two thousand. Oh Jesus. <laughs> um, I still saw it in the theater. Anyway, though. yeah, yeah. It's John Carpenter. Speaking he of theaters, here's something kind of funny. A little off the beaten track here for a second, but this this is interesting, and it, it's a nice little time capsule for folks. I saw this movie for the first time by myself in the theater, and it not only seemed by myself because of, of you know, the, the theater being virtually empty, but I sat so close to the screen that there was nobody in front of me. So it felt to me as if I was the only one in the theater. Yeah. few people behind me, not much. But it was terrifying. What's really weird is I was, if you do the math, I was 15 years old in 1990. I was told about this movie by a mutual acquaintance of ours uh, at uh, the the local theater that we both perform in. And he was saying what a great movie it was. And, man, if it had only not been called The Exorcist 3, yeah. <laughs> which he was right about. But so I said well, to myself, well, I've got to go see this. Well, it's rated R. Uh, but somehow, as a 15-year-old, <laughs> I got in. And now that I think back on it, they didn't – they weren't really – hardcore about checking IDs at the movie theaters. They were for me. I tried to get into Child's Play 2 and uh, they denied me. I even brought someone who was over 18, but that person, if he's buying a ticket for someone under 18, has to be over 21. Still couldn't get in. They carded that guy. For Child's Play 2. Child's Play 2! (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that guy still regrets what a Nazi he was. I'll tell you though, I, I did get in and I did see it by myself. It was terrifying. And that is um, that is one of the greatest parts about this movie. When I have people come to me who know that I love horror movies, um, and they maybe they aren't huge horror fanatics, and they say, they say hey, Timmy, um, I want to see a really scary horror movie. What should I watch? And I 100% of the time say The Exorcist 3. Yeah. Here's what's funny about that. There is next to no gore in this movie. No. Blood under doors, essentially. There's essentially nobody under the age of 60 in this movie, <laughs> which is a way off the beaten path of what you and I usually cover. Yeah. Um, yeah no teens, no final girl. No nudity? No nudity. No How drugs. I, the fact that I can like a horror movie with no nudity <laughs> is just a testament to what an amazing film this is. Yeah, the most nudity we get is uh, there's a nurse killed at the end. Well, yes, there is a bare-chested Jesus that opens his eyes. That's kind of funny. The opening scene is like this church and the the doors get blown. Well, anyway, one of the opening scenes. Right. The doors get blown open and the Christ figure opens his eyes, but his mouth is like gaping open. It's just, it looks funny. Yeah, he's got kind of like maybe, I don't know if it's an underbite or an overbite, but something (laughs) dental is happening there on Jesus's face. But, you know, this was, uh, they hadn't made as many. He looks more like he can't figure out what's going on other than like, I know exactly, oh, the terror it's kind of like it's terrifying, but I want to laugh a little right, bit. Right? Yeah, like, you can't help but laugh. That's the look. There are Jesus. a lot of weird bits in this movie that I laugh. They show a statue that looks exactly like the Joker. It is the Joker. It is the Joker. Here's what's funny. Um, and folks, God, I the more that we do research about these movies, the more that you find out how many great things come from just happenstance in filmmaking. Apparently, there is a scene that shows that statue's head being removed uh-huh. and replaced with a Joker head. Uh. But in the movie that we get to see, thankfully, and this is the the, the happy accidents that Bob Ross talks about, um, thankfully, <laughs> we don't see that scene. All we do see is a quick cut to that statue with a goddamn smiling Joker's head on it, and it's terrifying. Yeah. Um, well, I found it very funny. Yeah, well, it's it's funny and it's, it's creepy. Like, why? It's creepy as hell, and it's not explained at all. Um, oh, another funny bit, and this one is—I re- did not expect this at all. There is a 
within two lines of each other, there is a Saturday Night Live reference and a Spaceballs reference. <laughs> yeah. Because you... a nurse comes in to uh, Father D- uh, Dwyer. That's his Dyer. name. Dyer. Right? Dyer. Uh, comes into Father Dyer's room, you know, and she's in the wrong room. Like, this hospital is horribly run. It's just madcap all the time. And she comes in and she's like, oh, is this blah, 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 blah room? And he's like, no, this is 211. So she does the uh, Emily Latella, like, never mind. And he goes, may the Schwartz be with you. I was just like, what? <laughs> yeah. Like, here you've got this. But like, he's a fan of film, so I get it. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's this high, kind of like um, highbrow, like great horror thriller. And we've got a Spaceballs <laughs> reference. <laughs> right. Uh, it's so awesome. Um, it was in the cultural zeitgeist at the time. Was, yes. You know, Mel Brooks was hot. He was. He was. Yeah. That was a big hit, I think. Was I, for me. Was Spaceballs like my space jam for millennials? Like, that movie's awful, but like, there's just a generation who will fucking die on Space Jam. The Exorcist 3 was my space jam. There you go. <laughs> but it's a good movie, though. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. You don't point. revisit it and go, oh, this is a commercial. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> So well, it kind of is for the Catholic Church, right? Yeah, that yeah, like they need any more money, <laughs> right? My God, um, here's something that we're kind of knocking on the door of here that that I think about when I think about this movie is the idea of, of, and you and I have talked a little bit about it, the idea of two layers of horror and the fact that that you rarely get that um, unless you've got a, a really passionate and creative director. What I mean by those two layers are. If you watch your average, let's say, 80s slasher, it's presented, if you really think about this, it's, it's, it's very true. Your, your average 80s slasher only presents the horror that's on the screen. It doesn't do a lot atmospherically. I mean, right. there, there might be some, some scary music or stuff like that, but essentially you watch an 80s slasher because you want to see somebody get hacked with a machete yeah. or whatever. It's the terror that is happening in the frame on your screen. The next level of horror that this movie adds is through the use of some kind of bizarre sound effects, some sort of growlings that happen, that Joker statue that we're talking about that just sort of appears out of nowhere yeah. and isn't isn't referenced by anybody no. in the movie. like that growling happens a lot, and you expect someone to... Right. But no, it's just... It's uh, just for you. Yeah. It's just for you, the viewer. That's what's cool about it. It's The movie it has that second layer of, instead of just the terror that's on the screen, it's adding in little bits of atmosphere and little bits of, of just imagery that is terrifying, not to anybody that's interacting in the, in the movie itself, yeah. but just for you, the viewer. And that's what makes it scary as hell, especially when you're 15 years old and by yourself <laughs> in a goddamn movie theater. Right. Um, but yeah, that's how are you? Uh, how did you handle? Uh, let's just talk about the jump scare. Sure. Uh, how did that affect you? It, because I, it's like yeah. when I saw it, I know you know you know something's coming, or I know I know in the movie there is this prolific jump scare that's going to happen. So you're almost prepared for it. Um, but how did that? Uh, how did it? How did it get you? Let's get your reaction, then we'll talk about what it was. It was absolutely terrifying. <laughs> It was terrifying because um, there is a, there's a long setup. We'll, we'll get to the more of the bits and pieces, but I'll give you an example of just how fucking terrifying that was. I saw this movie in 1990, as we've already covered. I was on a treadmill at a private gym <laughs> in 2000. This would have been, let's call it 2016. So how many years later is that? 26 years later? Yeah. Okay. I was on a treadmill. It was a private gym in one of those 24-hour gyms. I was the only one there. It was very early in the morning. And there was uh, the news was playing up on a, on a TV monitor. And on that screen was this, an actual story about a statue whose head had been removed by vandals. Uh-huh. And I immediately got off that fucking treadmill and left that gym. I was looking over my shoulder and so freaked out because of the fact that that happens in this movie. Yeah. And there I am alone 26 years later in a workout facility. And I was still terrified to the goddamn bone. I mean, I've come up with some pretty lame excuses not to exercise. But that one... <laughs> That's pretty good. I might have. I might. I might steal that one for myself someday. 
So let's let's, so let's talk dig, about this let's scene. Let's dig into what happens here. Okay. Because it's what I like most about it is it takes a long time to get to it, uh, but you're not bored because it, it does feel like something's going to happen. And they even trick you with a lame jump scare. Right. Uh, so the shot is that we're in the hospital. Um, Father Dyer is already dead. Yes. Um, so the ner- the attending nurse. So we- it's like a shot way down the hallway, like two doors down from the nurse's station. And we just kind of see her attending. You hear some noises. She slowly walks down the hall. I mean, this scene itself is like four or five minutes long. She comes down. Now and now we've got our first cut when she goes into the room, uh, and she sees like some ice in a glass. That's what's been making the noise. The ice is melting, and then a doctor pops up who's been trying to take a nap. God damn it, because he's so busy, and this is the only chance he gets to rest. Why are you even in here? And the nurse is like, "Oh my god!" So she goes back out. Now we've got another super long shot of her just at her station. A security guard comes in, um, and then she hears another noise. This is like the only other cut in the scene. You just kind of see her at the station. She looks up. Now we're back to this super long shot. And this and it's a very tense moment because there's no reason they're showing you this. Like something's going to happen. Um and she comes so she comes over to the room she that was old, Father Dyer's old room. Uh and she's kind of checking that. Then in the background you And so she has her back turned. You see the security guard sitting there. Someone comes in, talks to him. He gets up and leaves. Like, she doesn't even see it. So you're already like, oh, that can't be good. Um, And so she fiddles around, and she, like, locks the door. And as soon as she turns around, out comes. Now, we've established these giant, like, bone shears earlier in the the movie. And it's just a great, this weird fucking nut. music hit sting they use um there's a quick zoom in and just someone in a white sheet just walking real fast right after her holding up those shears and that's all you see and it is it's very effective it is and that 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 person that you describe that comes out um it's like it's not quite like a nun it's in this sort of like white yeah it silky. just looks like they're in a big sheet yeah and it's uh it's like a clansman it's so right it's so bizarre Which go with the kkk theme <laughs> of the gemini killer who kills only people with Ooh, k's in their names i don't so think that's he, really a connection i don't think it is but i was like <laughs> are they yeah no that's it's a nice uh, nice grouping there um, yeah, the the scene goes on so long, and everybody knows the formula of the jump scare, which is a, a well-played jump scare is composed of two parts, um, sudden movement and loud noise. That's your basic ingredients of a jump scare. The third uh, and usually included uh, ingredient in a jump scare is a little bit of misdirection. So you get a little bit of a scare so that the audience then takes a deep breath, and when they take their deep breath, bam, then you nail them. So what this scene does is it just elongates that equation. Because if you think about it, actually, the security guard comes in, leaves, comes comes back back. again, and then leaves again. And so... By the time the jump scare happens, you are you have basically just completely let your guard down. Like you've been thinking for four minutes that something is going to jump yeah. out, and it's kind of like uh, this might seem like a strange. But it's example. such a wide shot too. It's like right. It's not as effective that that zoom helps, but it's still even a far shot. It's it's an interesting. This is kind of an interesting comparison. But I have a friend that is a photographer, and sometimes when we used to hang out at parties and stuff, he'd have his camera with him. And um, you would when you know he's got the camera on you, you sort of act a certain way. You know, you want to take a good picture and, uh, you know, it's just kind of in the moment. And I'll tell you, this guy was really gifted because the second that you would forget that he was there, bam, then he'd take the picture. It's just a really great skill on on their part. Same thing applies to this scene. You're you're so depleted of waiting for something to happen that you kind of finally just let your guard down, and then it hits, and it is terrifying. Yeah, yeah. So that and that is we're not overstating it here. You can do your research. 
that is regarded as likely, if if not the most, it's arguably the most terrifying jump scare in all of horror films. So pretty exciting. Like if if this and one film, of the most earned. Yeah, for sure. Like that's what makes it the best. Yeah, you truly well, earn it. As as I like to say, well crafted. <laughs> well crafted. <laughs> yeah. uh, let's talk about because uh, you know we could we could talk about this one for a long time. Yeah. Let's jump into some of the performances because some, as you said, it's all old people. Brad Dorif is the youngest guy in this movie, essentially. Yeah. Uh, but your your three main people are essentially uh, uh, George C. Scott as uh, as uh, Kinderlin, Ed Flanders as Father Dyer, who even he is not major, but he is major in relation to Kinderlin for a while. Sure. But he dies halfway through. And then Brad Dorif as the Gemini killer. Right. Those are our three main Right. Performances. Yeah, I would say so. Uh I th- I think um did you know that okay, cuz we have talked about how great uh George C Scott is in this movie. Do you know he was nominated for a fucking Razzie for this movie? Are you serious? Yes. Oh my god, what dumbass. Get out of here, you a-holes. Oh, that is, for those of you who don't know, Razzies are are kind of like this annual, it's kind of like the Bizarro World Oscars. Yeah, so what's they're the giving out to movie? Yeah, bad movies, bad performances. That's that's absolutely fucking ridiculous. Yeah. I'm going to say it right now. Um, as an actor, and and even if I wasn't act, wasn't an actor, um, I could tell you that this is one of the strongest performances ever given in any horror film. And oh, by the way, this movie has two of those. Yeah. Um, but yeah, let's talk about George C. Scott first for a second. Um, uh, we, you and I were talking about this a little bit earlier. It's not like George C. Scott is somehow forgotten in the, uh, you know, the, yeah, the lore th- of Hollywood actors. He's kind of the Ed Harris of his time. Yeah. It's a great character actor. You can always rely on him. He's always going to bring a, but play bring a pretty plenty of leads. Yeah. I mean, Patton for God's sake. I mean, it's, it's not like the guy is ignored, but if you took, Ed uh, Harris won an Oscar, right? Did it for oh, the yeah. painting movie? If you, um, <laughs> yeah, Pollock. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Um, if you. <laughs> I meant Basquiat, wasn't he? I that? never thought that <laughs> Pollock would work its way into one of our podcasts, but there he is. Um, it's the horrors so, of mental illness. Right, yeah, and pain splatters. <laughs> um, but, uh, so yeah, George C. Scott, if you took a, a line of 10, 19-year-olds right now and asked them who George C. Scott was, I don't think any of them would know. Maybe one or two yeah. at best. But uh, George C. Scott does such a great job in this film because he takes it seriously number one he w- he was a fan of this screenplay from the start um he really thought that it was an elevated film beyond just your your standard horror fare not that there's anything wrong with that i even like crappy horror fare but sure. uh but he saw something in it that he really believed in gives an outstanding performance not only in in dramatic fashion but there are some intentional Comedic scenes in this movie that are outstanding. You and I talk a lot about unintentional comedy in these movies that we cover. But there are some really hilarious scenes back and forth between him and Father Dyer. Yeah. And uh, yeah, those two together, there aren't a lot of like scenes with just Dyer by himself. Right. uh, But those two play off each other so well. Oh, like I totally believe they I'm like, they have to be friends in real life. Yeah. Yeah, the chemistry is fantastic. I remember being in a play. Um, it was a, a play that featured two. Uh, I was younger at the time, and my co-star was younger. And then there was also a scene of two more seasoned actors in our area at our theater. And uh, I like to think that my co-star and I were doing a fine job. But I, I'll never forget the director coming up to me when uh, they were about to work on a scene between those two other older actors. And I remember being a little pissed about it at the time. But he says... I want you to watch these guys and learn about pacing of a scene and feeding off of each other's lines and working off of each other's energy. And I'm kind of like, fuck you. Like, I'm a great actor, you know, whatever. <laughs> but he was right. I've I been watched that scene. for a native. <laughs> yeah, and one. Um, uh, finally. Yeah, you <laughs> had one yet. 20 years. Yeah, come on. <laughs> but, they don't uh, just give those to anyone. Right. Um, it is a local, very prestigious theater award oh, in our man. area. Um, anyway, uh, so I, I watched that scene, and, and I realized ex- that he was exactly right, that there there's a lot to be said for not just the lines that are on the page, not just the way that one actor says his lines, but the way that two actors play off of each other. And they do wonderfully, and there are some hysterical scenes, specifically a hysterical monologue 
about a carp oh my God. and Lieutenant Kinderman's reaction to there being a live carp in his house that his mother-in-law is is waiting to uh, to cook. And it is it is just outstanding. There's and, a genuine laugh from oh, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Father it, Dyer as he's telling the story. Yeah, you can just tell because it is a he's so serious about this fucking carp swimming around in his bathtub. Right. And you just tell like the laugh is so genuine. So not only do we have this this great natural and you're right. I, the more that I think about that, I think it is a real laugh. Oh, yeah. like it is. Um, <laughs> uh, no, you know what? I've even seen an outtake of that scene and they both of them crack up right at the end. Like as soon as they hit, say, cut, like they're both laughing hysterically. Um, so not only is there are this great comedic timing, uh, we were talking about it a little bit earlier. There are some moments of patience in acting uh, on the part of George C. Scott. Which, as as a listener right now, you might be thinking to yourself, like, well, what what does patience matter as as an actor? There are some scenes as simple as George C. Scott approaching a gurney uh, on which there is a dead body covered in a sheet. Yeah. Lifting up the sheet on one side, he's looking for some clues. He puts the sheet back down. He circles around the, the top of the gurney back to the other side. He lifts the sheet again, looks for more clues, sets it back down. What I just described sounds like the most simple movement in the world. Like, what could be interesting about that? But there's such a patience and deliberateness uh, with his performance that it's captivating. Yeah. And this is an Well, and you don't know it at the time, but he's checking for the – because, yeah, as you mentioned in our uh, brief recap, (laughs) that the the Gemini killer has these very specific – uh, calling card things that he does but when it was actually happening they lied to the public to weed out the the copycats and we find out later what his real things he did and then if you go back and look at that scene that's what he's doing he's confirming oh the finger has gone from this hand and the symbol is carved into this hand because he, he would do things at two different hands um so yeah th- then even watching that so and watching him like process that information but not knowing it at the time that you're watching it, but then going back, like it's so layered. It's so no, good. No, you're right. And the it's process, so nuanced. The processing part. It's a good. It's a great word to use because there are two murders that happen in this movie um, to people that Kinderman was at very least familiar with, and his reaction to the young boy's murder, which is featured in in sort of the beginning of the film is is more of a reaction probably i would say to the brutality of the crime you can tell that 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 there's some sadness there because he knew the boy casually this boy was uh, a regular at the police uh, you know sort of boys club after school kind of uh club so he knew the boy that was killed in in such a, a devastating fashion but he's sort of reacting to that and he gives a really great delivery and then when his friend his dear friend father dyer is killed you see this real soul-crushing grief that he goes through, and he has to examine the body because of his job. Yeah. But yet it's the body of this dear friend of his yeah. that they've shared this trauma together and the loss of another friend. And he he just exudes this this grief that is so palpable. Um, it's it's really affecting. And that, that office scene when the, yeah. that asshole uh, yeah, the hospital, hospital administrator, administrator yeah, is just Which a is jerk. a little too—like, he's a little— too over the top like there has been a murder where a a man's body was drained of his blood and he's like oh now you're gonna have all these cops here like yeah Yeah. dude and then you don't want us here george c scott has this like it's like there's almost like a strange tone to his voice but he's just like really feeling the emotion he just goes will you shut your mouth yeah (laughs) yeah and then he like holds his hand up and he starts crying like like he can't but he's holding it together, and then he's apologizing because right. he's kind of like old school. You See, know, I think Mendo that's where the Razzie came from because he does have these outbursts. Well, let's talk about that for a second. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you some thoughts that I have, and you're you're gonna understand this because you are a wonderful actor. Okay. Um, there are four types of acting, in in my opinion. One is bad acting. <laughs> okay, <laughs> we'll get that out of the way. The second one is what I would call thoughtful acting. Thoughtful acting would be somebody who's done their research. They understand the accent. They understand where this person's from. They understand their background. They've done some. They've they've kind of processed some ideas of where this person is coming from and what they're driven by. 
The third level of acting is what I would call dynamic acting. Okay, that's where you're adding charisma and light behind the eyes and showmanship and presentation. And the fourth is great acting, which is a combination of parts two and three. Right. And he really does a fantastic job. And another person that comes to mind would be, let's say, Daniel Day-Lewis. This is a guy that's obviously very thoughtful in the precision of his acting, but he is no stranger to selling the shit out of <laughs> oh, it. Oh, sure. And, you know, maybe even chewing the scenery a little bit. Um, but George C. Scott does a great job of really inhabiting this character. Yeah, I don't think he won the Razzie, so. Right, yeah. Thank God for that. At least there's some justice. <laughs> um, but, uh, but no, he, long story short, if for no other reason, and by the way, there are many others, but if for no other reason, George C. Scott is wonderful in this movie. And I'm going to tell you one more thing about acting. Lead actors are crippled by the fact that they don't have the defining characteristics of a character actor. Right. A character actor is usually given a, you know, maybe a funny accent or a limp or uh, a weird costume or a weird appearance. Lead actors aren't are, are very neutral generally, yeah. and so they're not really given those little crutches to to rely on as far or or literal crutches <laughs> to rely on, <laughs> you know, to sell their their performance. But he power leads this movie. I mean, he he is he is the lead actor. And he sells it with the sort of charisma that normally a character actor would use. Yeah. And it's it's so great. Um Brad Dourif? Yes. <laughs> okay, for those of I you I just I didn't know I don't know how to I don't I didn't know how to start because it, his performance in this is it's so good. Um and maybe that's helped with like the, the vocal modulation they did. I think that enhances it a lot. Because uh, he does like swing from this like grumbling kind of demonic, and then this like angelic falsetto, uh, maybe a little like f- like feminine asexual voice here or there. Um, but a uh, thank you for calling me a great actor. I will point out I am a lazy actor, and uh, I was just like, oh, lucky Brad Dourif. His only job in this movie was to sit. And do a monologue. Like, oh my god, I never thought about that's that. That's all he does. He is in no other. He's in one location, chained to a bed. I was just yeah. like, oh, what a dream. Yeah, long gone is the what do I do with my hands problem <laughs> yeah, that plagues so many actors. <laughs> but that is also very challenging because now he has to sell everything with what he's saying and how he's saying it, and it's and he just his eyes are just constantly watering, um, because as uh. It's obviously not Brad Dourif in well, not obviously. I will say, when we first find, when he first sees this patient, because he patient as, as yeah, patient X, because he's walking by the disturbed ward and he hears Bill, and he's like, "What's going on in here?" And they're like, "Oh wow, uh, actually, that guy, uh, he's been sitting there for like fifteen years doing nothing, but all of a sudden he's been starting to talk and he's super creepy." And so they let him go in to talk to him, and he's like, "Oh shit." It's my friend who died. Yeah. It's the it's the priest who killed himself. Right. Yeah. So, but as this guy talks to Kinderland, he then becomes Brad Dorif, uh, who is the Gemini killer. So his spirit has been implanted. The old devil was like, "Oh, you tricky fools! You got me, but so I'm gonna send this evil guy back in your friend's body. Uh, deal with that, suckers! I don't know why the devil couldn't have done that himself. I don't know why he needed a live body." These are just the things I think about. <laughs> yeah, why didn't the devil just go into the old people, right? Right. Like, yeah. now you've established you can just use dead people as oh, your it's, vessels? It's because the it, it's, it, the devil's a, just a little prick. He's got know? a lot of rules. A lot yeah. of rules. Yeah, but he, he's he got to shine on the world by, by inhabiting the body of a priest just because that's a little icing on the cake. Yeah. But, yeah, what's interesting about uh, going kind of going back to what I was saying about those different types of acting, that thoughtful acting versus uh, or in conjunction with dynamic acting, what do we know about serial killers? Okay, this is interesting. Serial killers are, by and large, um, driven by a sort of righteous indignation. So they believe that what they do, uh, they are allowed to do because of they're of some higher intelligence or some higher state of being. So that they are, they are driven to do what they do and they are not bound by our laws. A second thing that, that's very common for serial killers is a narcissism. Um, so Brad Dourif 
really conveys these lines using both of those things very much. So he's extremely passionate of when he's speaking in the voice of of the Gemini killer of being passionate about his work. Yeah. And he's also really relishing it at the yeah. same time with that sort of narcissism that a really well, yeah, one of the only times he really explodes is Jorsey Scott's like, you're not you're not the Gemini killer. He's like, oh, I am right on me, my work. And it is it is. I'll tell it you does what, it way better than that. We <laughs> that was pretty good though. <laughs> um, but you know, it, it, I I don't want to take anything away from Brad Dourif, but ladies and gentlemen, it it is him in conjunction with some spectacular writing. Yeah, some really really great he's writing. Not doing like, there's no like dumb like little mannerisms like lip licking or like. Yeah, it's fucking dumb. Some dumb laugh that he does or something. You know what it is. You just you just reminded me of something. I think it was Jack Nicholson that fucked it up for everybody. <laughs> and what I mean by that is his wonderful performance in The Shining uh-huh. kind of created this sort of. And I'm talking about when he's really sort of descending into madness. Yeah. And he has this sort of like gleeful. Char- like charm and excitement in what he's doing, and it almost comes across as positivity, but it's really crazy because he's killing people. Um, and I think that that just kind of created this template for people to have diminishing t- returns on for you know movies to come to yeah. where. If you play a killer, you've got to have these little like quirks and ticks about you, and right. um, and y- you get some sort of like candy coated performances instead of something deeper and real, which is what we get from Brad Dourif. And don't get me wrong, he makes it spectacular and and exciting and and um, accentuated in a lot of his delivery, but it never feels, you're right, like like I'm going to have this weird little mannerism that's right. going to make me crazy looking. Yeah, no. You know? It's just the things he, he's saying. Yeah, that he are believes in what sinister. the hell he's yeah. saying. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so those are our three uh, main guys who are amazing. Let's uh, talk briefly about the insane cameos that are in this movie. Oh, yeah. Because there are two separate sections with crazy cameos. One is very subtle. It's the first time that... Dyer and and Kinderland meet they're having lunch and I I realize now why they did it because it's set in DC and so they show A there's a quick shot of uh, Larry King like ordering some food and also of uh, C. Everett Koop who was uh, I'm forgetting his uh, part in what administration he is an old uh, and you totally miss like you almost see him like barely through a pane of glass like like a glass divider uh, but he's got a real uh, distinct little, like, goatee. If you saw him, you'd go, I remember that guy from the news when I was a kid. Um, so those are, like, they have no lines at all. Those are the real weird. But I get those. Like, they're in D.C. It's establishing, like, this is kind of a cool restaurant that all the, you know, people go to. Now, the super weird one. <laughs> there is a really, and it. Watching it the first time, so there's this dream sequence, and it almost initially felt out of place because it's very – it's not really dealt like a dream sequence. Like there's no – there's no like filter on it. It's just like here's the image, um, and and it's like these angels with huge wings uh, that look so out of place in this movie that – because our character is based – very much in reality like kinderlin is like that is what he like that's his life philosophy like the reality of life uh you know there people do these murders and you know the, the real evil are these people you know so for him to be having this dream with these <laughs> like giant angels um so we're go- we're going through this scene there's a weird shot of fabio as an angel I totally <laughs> understand that like if you're gonna cast an angel, yeah, you cast 1990s Fabio, yeah. Because yeah. damn, I forgot how uh, uh, amazingly attractive that guy is. Um, there is, if you if you blink, you miss it because you won't know by his voice because they overdub his voice. But Samuel L. Jackson is in this in the dream sequence, right? Uh, and then you have playing the angel of death, <laughs> New York Knicks Superstar Center. Patrick Ewing didn't see that one coming. Did not see that one coming. No lines. Like he, it's kind of a good performance. 
he's just like playing cards with Father Dwyer. This is right before Dwyer Dyer dies. And he's like playing cards with him. Um, the one thing that it also has, now this isn't so much a cameo, but somebody explained to me why this happened. I'm pretty sure, aren't there some dwarves in that scene? Oh, yeah. There are some other, yeah, there are some very weird imagery. There's like a priest in a big glass dome. Yeah. Like 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 the rose in Beauty and the Beast is right, it? Like, right, I kind of want to, but it's a huge uh, size. Also, a great line <laughs> from George C. Scott where, so the, the kid that was killed in the beginning of the movie comes up to him. He's like, oh, Lieutenant. And he's like, oh, hey, you know, I'm so sorry you were brutally murdered earlier. Like, in the nicest <laughs> yeah. way. Yeah, it's this, it's like a, it, it's set in sort of like this kind of purgatory, like, bus terminal. Yeah, it's like a, it's, 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 it's like, Grand Central like a, Station. Yeah. And um, so the setting is is strange, but I mean, there's some weird things happening with music. And like I said, the, the dwarf thing, like who decided that every dream sequence had to have dwarves right. in it? Like somehow that like sells it as a dream sequence. But you're right. It's it's that um, was a very 80s to 90s. Yeah, thing, I think so. Know. But it was um, it, you're right. It is it is kind of like a funny but unsettling scene at the same time. And it's just very cool. Like, yeah. I mean, no, but yeah, nobody expected to see Patrick. I'm Ewan, glad but there I'm, weren't more dream sequences. Like that was no, the only right. one you needed. But I will say, as unexpected as it may be, Patrick Ewing, despite not having any dialogue, plays a great angel of death. Great angel of death. Right. He's got kind of stone faced and, uh, you know, just flipping over some tarot cards. And um, yeah, it's, it's a great little yeah. Little moment there. All right, we're getting close to the end. So okay. we can't talk about The Exorcist 3 without talking about the exorcism in it. Right. And because there's a bit of controversy surrounding it. Yes. So The Exorcist 3 is filmed uh, by William Peter Blatty, written and filmed in a certain fashion to where all, everything that we've been talking about happens in the movie, with a couple of different exceptions. Number one, the actor who played Father Karras in the original movie was originally thought not to really be available for The Exorcist Three to reprise his role because he had some personal issues. Um, turns out he got over those apparently right. enough to be in the movie. So originally Brad Dourif played the the all of the scenes where he's playing both Karras and um, the Gemini Killer, and there was no appearance of the original. Father Karras, as played by Jason Miller, we get that in the theatrical cut. Then, regardless of that, though, what happens is they film this movie and they finish it. They literally finish the movie, and then some secretary at Morgan Creek, which was the production company that that was making the film, said, you know, this doesn't have anything to do with The Exorcist, and you got to have an exorcism. Right. And it was literally like just some secretary's opinion, which, I mean, she's entitled to it. That's fine. But the original movie ends with Kinderman going into patient X's cell and saying, um, uh, pray for me, Damien, you're free. And he shoots yeah. the Because um, he's just attacked X. his family. Like the, the using yeah. his radio signal, he's gone in a hilarious scene. Oh, yeah. Where it's a old, it's a one of the canatonic pa- patients dresses up as a nurse comes. There is a great scene right before that because it's and it's super creepy because uh, Kinderlin calls his house because he knows they're going to be targeted. the The wife picks up the phone. Also, quick tangent: the worst fucking ADR on this family. I don't know why, and it's only those characters, especially especially the yeah that automated dialogue replacement. I think is what yeah. it stands for. Um. But it, it's like it's jarring how bad it is on this wife. But any it, that's neither here nor there. So, but she's like, "Oh, hey, Bill. Yeah. Um. Oh, yeah. A nurse is coming by." And then it cuts back to him, and he's like on the phone, not talking. And there's like a busy signal. Now, if you don't know how phones worked in right. 1990, you would just be like, "I don't understand what the fuck's happening here." But it's obvious this demon is now talking to the wife. Sends the nurse over. Bill shows up. Narrowly, like the nurse brings those shears out, and there is a hilarious. It's so funny. It's kind of tense in the moment, but as she goes to cut the daughter's neck, like the grandma grabs the daughter, and the daughter has this goofy, like, look at her face as her neck is narrowly. So, yeah, so now he's pissed. He just goes back and just shoots. 
Right. And it's kind of like it's it's a very bleak ending that the studio wasn't a big fan of because it's basically just this guy saying like, hey, I might go to prison for this. Um, I uh, mess with my family. Yeah. Like, I don't believe in demonic possession, but I I am kind of being swayed now because I just can't handle this friend of mine uh, being in this torment anymore. And he's willing to sacrifice his own freedom uh, just to put an end to this. And so it ends very quickly, very abruptly and very, very bleakly. So the secretary says, hey, you got to have an exorcism. So Morgan Creek ponies up four more million dollars. Oh, four million. Jesus. To f- well, they spent it all in this scene. Oh, yeah. To film a scene, an ending, a climax that not only kind of completely sort of messes with the, the tone that has been established in the movie, um, but actually brings about the introduction of a different character who yeah. was not in the director's cut at no. all. And what that's and we've the, only had one scene with him earlier. Yeah. Right? And, but I mean, there was no, he wasn't in. Right. The, oh, yeah. yeah. They told. Yeah. It's but, a totally right. out of context scene. Yeah. His name's Father Morning. And the only reason why he was injected into the script was. There's nobody left to perform an exorcism, right? right? So they create this character of Father Morning, who apparently had done uh, an exor- exorcism in the Philippines. He's local. Yeah. He's got some experience. But there's no setup to him knowing about the events that are no. happening. He just gets his exorcense going and yeah. is like, oh, wait, I think there's a demon nearby. <laughs> right. It's Yeah, There's it's a little loose in, in the 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 plot uh, right there and and I mean when I don't think it's enough to to ruin anything for you but it goes into this like exorcism sequence that all of a sudden there is some real gore and there is some special effects and it's which is what made me realize there really was no gore because you he gets pinned to the ceiling and almost stuck there and he peels his face off and his skin sticks and you're like oh damn yeah, but now, that made me realize, like, oh, I have not seen anything like that in this movie yet. Now it does give Kinderman a a kind of nice monologue that I actually like quite a bit, where um, the the demon, as he's sort of tormenting Kinderman, because what happens is the the priest goes in there, Father Morning, out of nowhere, performs an exorcism which has failed, um, and then in comes Kinderman. And Kinderman is now being tortured by this demon and he's thrown up against the wall and pressed against the wall. And the demon is saying, have I helped your unbelief uh, in in, you know, religion? And uh, Kinderman gives this great monologue about what he does believe yeah. in. And believe it's like, death. yeah, I believe, I believe in, in muck. Injustice. I believe in slime. <laughs> yeah. And then um, and then finally he finishes it with I believe in you and it's like it's really a great moment so it, what i'm getting at here is was, and then it ends with him getting blown away like, right yeah, kinda, yeah still anyway it's still kind of the same thing right but so, it is a much better setup yeah and although I, kind of because the priest is just like oh fight right fight and for one second with the great line that I know. So Tim told me, he's like, this is the line I used when our friend asked me to play fantasy football. And it's, now, Bill, now, shoot me now, kill me now. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's this great scene where for a moment, uh, Father Karras, uh, you know, kind of gains the strength to come back. And uh, it's finally him and begs to be shot in that yeah. moment so he can be freed. So and then his spirit final... still stuck in that body? I'm going to overthink this one. But they do show him <laughs> being buried. And, and, yeah. Yeah. And so it, it's... Along with the script to Exorcist Four, like, Right. Just... Yes. So it's it's Well, because ending... this movie only made like... It, it made like nine mil the opening weekend and then only tripled that. Like it only made like 26 million, 27 million. Right. And then and like you and I were talking about before, <laughs> like it, it opens great and then it kind of dwindles. And by the there's third... a big fight about calling it Exorcist. Right. Because William Peter Blatty, Blatty did not just want Yeah. He's like, call it Legion. Even Exorcist Legion, I think, would have been a good title. Yes. But they called it part three. It did horribly, and the studio's like, oh, you know what it was? Exorcist 2. It was terrible. We just found that out. No one liked it. Yeah, and then uh, Blatty is like, oh, you think? <laughs> really? Is that what it was? You mean what I told you before? But, um, but yeah, either way, The Exorcist 3 is something, surprisingly, for everything that we've talked about, 
relatively few people that I've ever talked to have seen this movie, and I think that it. it I think the name continues to haunt it. Yeah. Uh, people think like, well, I didn't really see part one. A lot of people haven't even seen the original Exorcist in in this generation. Yeah. Um, Which I don't think and, you need to. I think you could go right into this yeah. movie. If you know the most basic plot line of the first movie, a girl gets possessed and and a, a priest uh, sacrifices himself to to free the her of the demon. That's all you need to know. Yeah. You can go right into the Exorcist three and love the hell out of it. So yeah, um, I think that I think we've covered everything we wanted to cover. Oh, one more thing, oh, it one is, more. It is Jeffrey Dahmer's favorite film. <laughs> Excellent. Was Jeffrey Dahmer's favorite? Yeah, film. he ate it up. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy, hot, hot references. Uh, okay, so that was it. Nineteen ninety is The Exorcist three. I highly recommend Tim. Absolutely, yeah, high recommendation from both of us. Uh, not much more to say about it. Join us next week when we talk about the 1985 satirical comedy? Maybe. Maybe. The stuff. Our first request, essentially. Someone asked, are you doing it? Not like, hey, do the stuff. Are you doing the stuff? Yes, now we are. That's all it takes. And we'll talk about whether or not requests are a good idea anymore. (laughs) We may be vetting some of the movies we do a little harder. Oh, the anticipation, I'm sure, is going to kill you for the next week, waiting for that hot stuff episode to drop. We missed a total opportunity to do a rosary clutching in, for this movie. Oh, yeah. Of Pearl's, but you know what? I, hey. was, I was like, maybe I can skip pearl clutching on this one. <laughs> no. Rosary clutching is good. And 10. 10 on the rosary clutching <laughs> yes. on this movie. Absolutely. Um, okay, cool. So uh, that was the show. Please follow us on Instagram at uh, Slumber Podcast Massacre. Email us at slumberpodcast at gmail.com. Our Patreon is patreon.com slash slumberpodcastmassacre. I have been forgetting to thank Sarah Dooley for our fucking awesome theme song. I want to keep doing that. Check her out. The Unruliest Dooley on Instagram. Uh, she has a book out. Are you my Uber? Uh, all that great stuff. So, uh, yeah, join us next week when we talk about the stuff. And uh, I think that's it. I'll see you later, Timmy. God bless you, Andrew.